the abounding joy of New Testament hope. The sources of hope. The sources of the Christian's hope. The text we're continuing with is the one we started with last week. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and then verses 22 to 25. I'm just doing that to save time, but I don't think it butchers the context of the thoughts that I, I want to focus on today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, we use this phrase a lot, but we don't always link it to this, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been, now he's going to use it again, born again, not of perishable seed, but of, but of imperishable, through the, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and he's not talking now about the grass in the field or on your front lawn. He's talking about you. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of God, there's the second mention, remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, Romans 15, verse 4 Paul says, whatever was written in former days, he's thinking now about the Old Testament, was written for our New Testament instruction. That, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, there it is again, we might have, there's the subject, hope. Let's pray. We, we live in a world that buries all of our transient hopes. Health fades. People die. Wickedness abounds. Dreams get crushed. Relationships sour and end. Oh, how this world longs to see an imperishable hope. So, something that, like Peter says, something that doesn't fade like a flower in a vase on a desk. Something that doesn't fade. Something that lasts. Something that can be anchored to. And so we, we come to something very precious in these verses. 
Let us not take them for granted. Let us all be possessed, not just by the concept of hope, let us be possessed of a living hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The main premise of last week's teaching was, if people notice anything about me as a Christian, it should be my hope. And they should find it so amazing that, that they can't help having their curiosity aroused. They can't keep themselves from approaching me and asking me about it. But, but in your heart, 1 Peter 3.15, honor Christ as the Lord as holy, not just as loving, but as holy, always being prepared he seems to imply that this is going to happen all the time. Always be prepared to make a defense. And the way we read the rest of the verse is, like we're supposed to be ready to give a defense for our faith, like we're supposed to be ready with an apologetic, proving God exists, proving he's good in a world full of suffering and evil, answering their questions, dealing with the things that make them question the accuracy of the Bible. That's the way generally the text is read. You be ready. Be, have, have, be smart. Know how to defend your faith. Know how to answer the questions that people ask. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do courses. We train. That's all well and good. It's just not really what this passage is about. Always being prepared to make a defense, not for your faith, Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. The hope that is in you. Your hopes don't... You, you seem to live for something that is sturdier than what I'm living for. I can't figure you out. Why would you take good money that you could invest in an RSP and give it to missionaries? It makes no sense. What makes you do stuff like that? Give a reason for it, the hope that you have. Your, your, life, your life seems anchored somewhere else, and I, can't, I don't understand it. You, things don't seem to crush you. I mean, I know you go through hard times. I've seen it. But there seems to be something enduring in you. I don't have that. Where do you get that? The reason for the hope. And so their curiosity will force them to push past their own shyness because there's something just so appealing about the hope that you have. It's an incredible verse of Scripture, I think. People who ask me about my hope are looking for more than solutions to philosophic or apologetic issues. Those are good. I'm not, I'm not saying anything against any of that. But Peter says, the people you work with who don't know Jesus, even if they aren't aware of it, they're on a quest for hope. They, they sense their own mortality. They wonder what it all means. 
So obviously, hope is vitally important in the Christian walk. In future studies, in fact, we're going to look at the fruit of hope, the things hope produces, um, things like joy, perseverance, purity, righteousness, confidence in prayer. There's a whole bunch of things that the Bible ties to the hope that we have. We're not there yet. Today we're still focusing not on the fruit of hope, but rather the source of hope. If hope is anywhere near as important as the Bible says it is, the natural question is, where does it come from and how can I have it and how can I get more of it? The three sources of hope, two of which we looked at last Sunday, the grace of God, and the encouragement of believers in a local church. Maintaining hope is always corporate, never individual. We looked at those two. The third, the indwelling word of God. So that's where we're, that's where we're turning today. The third of those ingredients. Point number one. Hope comes from the encouragement of, of the scriptures. The link, I hope you saw it. I'm going to look at it again. The link between... Hope and the scriptures, it's made so clear that it's uh, unavoidable in the Spirit's mind for today's church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There it is. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, through the living and abiding word of God. Now, I couldn't get all of that on one screen. If I could have, I would have done an arrow up to the previous part, and I would have said, we've been born again to a living hope through the living and abiding word of God, okay? So, so the link I'm trying to show here is the word of God as a source of the kind of hope. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but, but here again, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And it's the same idea, the same idea we read it, is still in that Romans 15.4. He's talking about what was written in former days. Was written. He's not talking now about sermons. He's, he's talking about the Old Covenant, the recorded Old Testament. Was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, very specifically, there, we might have hope. That's the goal. That's why you have this book. The production of hope. So at least, at least two thoughts are flagged there. Let me just go over them. A, unlike any other book, the Bible possesses its own latent power to do something living and dynamic in your mind. I should, I should describe that a little bit. 
so we don't take it for granted. Any book, good or bad, can affect change in your life as you study it. There are great books, lots of them, reading. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing. That's the way all literature works. Every one of us, I'm sure, can think back to some book that we read, and, and, it, and you can still travel there in your mind. It was just a special read that did something in your life. All good books do that. Now, that is not what Peter has in mind when he says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass, all its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So, so when Peter says the word of God is imperishable and living and abiding, he, he means that it, it carries something with it into your human understanding. Everything else, he says, will wear out and fail. Ideological movements come and go. Fads change. Bestsellers are soon forgotten. When's the last time you had a deep conversation with someone about the shack? Gone. Oh, the whole church was, I don't know, the books. Didn't somebody write something? Fades. Fades. So, so the impact of all these things, in, in Peter's words, the impact of all these things is a fading influence. A diminishing. Not that it doesn't have influence, but it's a diminishing influence. The word of God, he says, is different. It's, it's enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. And God is eternal. And God is almighty. This is what makes the Bible a book of hope. It's not, it's not just that the Bible tells us about hope the way a history book tells us about history or the way a cookbook tells you about recipes. It's not that it has information. No. The Holy Spirit works through the Word the way electrical current turns on your lights and your TV. So it's a living book, a dynamic book. God God speaks through it as he does through no other book. The second thing, I said there were two things. B, the promise of the scriptures is hope to the hopeless. You see it right there in Romans 15, 4. Let me clean that up a little wee bit. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance... And the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Notice that we might have hope. So, so the word brings hope, not just as a subject, but as a possession. If people have hope through the word who previously had no hope. So the word gives them something. It provides something. 
Well, that's good, Pastor Don, but I'm still not, I'm still not getting it. Like, how, how does that work? How does, this is print on paper, just like any other book, right? There's A's and B's and Q's and G's and M's, and you put them together and you get words, and then there's numbers. So all those symbols on these pages are just like all the language symbols on any page of any book anywhere. Agreed? So, so what's, what's the deal with somehow this can give me hope that no other book can give? How does that, how does that work? Well, let me give you one example. This morning, we'll look at others. Let me just, one example. Paul, Paul writes about his own conversion. It's recorded in the scriptures. And he says that he wrote it, and people read it, they, they will have hope. Hope when they feel they have failed God too badly to ever be fruitful or happy again. Maybe you're here and that's you. Pastor Don, you know, you're up there, and you look out over this big crowd, and everybody looks fairly nice, most of you, and... and but you don't know. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in row 23, seat 18. My life's a mess. And I have, I have messed things up so badly. And my heart is so far from God. My, my situation is not like the person six seats down sitting there with his wife. And my situation is a mess. My, my situation is hopeless. Now, here we have this book, and I'm saying this book can give hope to that person. And the fair question is, well, how? Paul says he wrote about his conversion. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And the thing about this text is, Paul writes about himself, but then in a way that only Paul does, he steps back from his own writing and he says, now here's, here's, the, here's the process of these words producing hope in your life. Let me explain how this works, Paul says, after he gives his testimony. So it's information, but it's more than information. It's information with an application pushing at the end of it. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank God who has given me strength. Jesus Christ our Lord. Because he, he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though, now he's going to qualify, this, this probably shouldn't have happened. That's what Paul's saying. Though formerly I, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, not a, just an unbeliever, a, a fighter. Then he says, but I receive mercy. Remember the first thing I said in this series, the three things, the grace of God gives hope? I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, there it is, overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to start explaining. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Does the old King James still say chief, chiefest of sinners, something like that? 
the foremost. But I receive mercy, and here are the important words. I receive mercy for this reason. And you say, well, there's no reason, Paul. When we get mercy, it's because he loves us. Why did God show you mercy? Well, he, he loves us. He's nice. That's why God, he just, he just loves to show mercy. God doesn't just do anything. He's very, very brilliant. Paul says, I received mercy, and he said there was a reason for it. That in me, as the foremost, he doesn't mean foremost wonderful, he means the foremost that. Okay, that's what he means. The rottenest. I, I killed people for trusting in Jesus Christ, Paul says. I ripped families apart and put people in prison just because they were followers of Jesus Christ. That's what I did. Have you done that? Paul had. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might, don't you love this, that verb, display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. You will find wonderful examples. I just, I only have time to do that one. There are many You'll see wonderful examples of the power of God's amazing grace. You'll see what God has done for others, worse blasphemers than you. You hear Paul's words, God did this for me so that you'd know, down through the ages, Paul would, if he were standing here, he would run up to that person I said in row 27, seat 18, who says, I'm hopeless, and he would say, if God did this for me, it's easy for him to do it for you. That's what Paul would say. That, that through the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. That's just one way we receive hope through what is written in the scriptures. The word comes and it focuses our hearts on bigger, eternal, unshakable realities to keep us from getting discouraged there are promises for my needs. There are examples to be inspired by. There are mistakes to be avoided. There's a beautiful description of what awaits the persevering child of God, the things that can't be taken away. Finally, all of this raises a question, and I'm almost done. If such is the power and potential of God's word to inspire hope. And if that's an example of how it does it, and if that's true, Pastor Don, why do so many people who claim to read their Bibles not light up with this transforming hope? Why do people who read their Bibles feel hopeless? I'm going to close with what I think is the best biblical explanation to that difficult question. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So there's advice. 
our books, blogs, podcasts. There's advice. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. We, we live in a culture whose sole aim is to make sinful activities appear normal. We're, we're proud of our sin. And it's very easy just to get swept along. Picture, you know, I've, I've, I've been in situations uh, in, Rini and I like going to New York City. I know we're crazy, but we just like it. And you go down into the subway, and you go down there when it's about 5.30, and everybody's, everybody's coming home, and you're at Grand Central getting on the subway. And you get down there, and you stand there, and you really can't just stand there because everybody is, there, it's, a, it's a swarm of bees, and they're all heading toward that subway. And, and you better be on the right track and have the right sense of direction because you're moving in that direction. There's no way not to. And so that's the idea of standing. Now think of that in culture, the direction of culture, the things culture fascinates itself with, and they're moving in a certain direction, and, and you just get swept along. Standing in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he, he prospers. As improbable as it seems to some people, the psalmist's message is, is still clear and true. There's a blessedness. You can be like a tree by streams of water, fruitful, enduring, prospering. That doesn't mean getting rich. It means in everything you, you, you're buoyant. You keep going. But there are actually two messages in that psalm and not just one. So in other words, receiving hope, blessedness from God's word, it's a two-staged process. If you try and make it a one-staged process, it won't work. So it's not merely a matter of filling your mind with God's Word that brings hope. That might be the most commonly held misconception in the evangelical church. Here's, here's how it actually works. Hope comes from deletion as much as from addition. In fact, hope comes first by deletion and then by addition. That's why the psalmist doesn't start with verse 3. He starts it with 1 and 2. You and I cannot just add God's word to our busy lives like you add cream to your coffee. And so the psalm begins where it begins. Don't start applying the psalm at verse 2. You have to start with verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is a common spiritual pattern. It's almost universally ignored increasingly as the church gets more and more tolerant 
just as I will have to expend increasing effort to not forsake gathering with the local church in spite of some bad examples, so I will have to expel competing voices in my affections to make room for God's hope-building word. In other words, there's a price to be paid, and it's going to be a growing price to find encouragement in the church, to find hope in God's word, and it's not going to diminish. Parents, this is only going to get more difficult for your children. Don't give them a lazy example to follow. Overdue spiritual commitments so they will always have a higher than average standard to aim at. Overdue spiritual commitments so they will always have a higher than average standard to aim at. But here's the point that I want to close with. The effort that's required to amplify the power of hope in God's word is not a losing venture. It's challenging, but it's rewarding. Those, those voices competing, competing with the exclusive truth of hope in God's word, all those other voices are hope stealers. They are empty idols to which you attach false hopes. And it's rampant in today's culture. False hopes that will never pan out, that can't pan out. They're fading. They're not enduring. They won't last any more than you're going to last. They're hope stealers. There is hope, wonderful hope to be had for the godly. Hope is a lot like wisdom. Uh, It's for those who dig for it, like gold. If I come to the place in my life where I'm just praying, where I'm just praying that my devotional time, I'm trying to read through the Bible this year. So far I'm on track. But if I'm thinking, you know what, that's whatever it takes every day, half hour to 40 minutes. If I'm thinking that I will just read that and continue to live the rest of my life on my own terms, and this book will just like a syringe and it'll inject something into me, it's not going to happen. I will be untransformed by the word. But, but if, if at that time, you know, when the Holy Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, that book, the Holy Spirit speaks and says, Don, what you're watching on that big screen TV, if, if you keep ingesting stuff like that, you will negate the power of hope that you spent those 40 minutes in the Bible. Like it's a, it's, it's a deleting and then, and then a filling in with the truth of God's word. And that is the only way it'll work. God, God constantly calls me not just to a habit of devotions, as good as that is, 
but he constantly calls me to take my brain and shape it here and, and don't allow it to be shaped here. That's the process. Be, be transformed <laughs> by the renewing of your mind. You can't just fire in some Bible verses. And everyone said... <laughs>